people are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is Greetings and welcome again to An Economy One. I am your host, Gary Rothman. Our website, aneconomyofone.com. Aneconomyofone.com, as is our Facebook, Economy One. Go to our Facebook page. The producers, Katie, puts up stuff all the time, every day. And take a look. See if you like what you see there. You know, I, I uh, there's so many things right now that I'm just... I'm just kind of getting tired of. I'm tired of the presidential campaigns already. I'm really tired of the word inclusiveness in relation to bathrooms. But I, I, I guess in addition to all that, I'm tired of people in power telling Americans that they're lucky and that big government is responsible for things. What am I referring to? Well, this week, I uh, read the transcript of President Obama's graduation uh, address at Howard University. And I, I don't know if you, you read this or saw any of this or not, but it just it just really irks me. I, I don't know how else to put it, but his message was typically divisive, uh, strong, progressive, message and, and and absolution for any type of of personal responsibility for people to 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 take out a few quotes out of that graduation message i, I just want to pull a few and uh comment on them uh, one quote was we can't walk by a homeless man without asking why a society as wealthy as ours allows that state of affairs to occur we can't just lock up low-level dealers without asking why this boy, barely out of childhood, felt he had no other options. Well, you know what? Yes, I can walk by a homeless man without asking a question as to why a wealthy society as ours can allow that to happen. We didn't allow it to happen. He made choices. Homeless people who are not mentally ill tend to be addicts, either drugs or, or alcohol, or they're ex-cons who, you know, have burned all their bridges and done all the, the uh, wrong things. They chose a different path, and that path has consequences. And uh, it's not my fault, and it's not my responsibility. The low-level dealers, I don't know what a low-level dealer is. To me, a dealer is a dealer. Barely out of childhood, felt he had no other options. That's easy. That's easy. Bad parenting and progressive politicians who've told that kid his whole life that the system is rigged against him and he's a victim. You look at our educational system, you look at our parenting skills out there today, 
I forget the percentage, but it's a huge percentage of children are born to one parent, uh, especially minority children, although white children are catching up uh, as far as a percentage goes. But uh, bad choices. People are choosing the wrong thing and then not taking responsibility or feeling they're not responsible for the consequences of those choices. President Obama says those people are ground down by racism. You know what? If your life sucks, 99.9% of the time, it's your fault. Society isn't unfair or unjust. It doesn't even care or know you exist. You make your situation, you make choices, and you have consequences based on that choice. The next quote from the president was equally horrible. And that means we have not only to question the world as it is and stand up for those African-Americans who haven't been so lucky, lucky, because, yes, you've worked hard, but you've also been lucky. That's a pet peeve of mine. People who have been successful and don't realize they've been lucky. That God may have blessed them. It wasn't nothing you did, so you don't have an attitude. Now, once again, these people at at Howard University, these are graduating people, men and women. And they've made choices. They've worked hard with goals in mind. They have accomplished what was necessary to have that diploma. And that diploma is going to help them reach the next goal. They weren't lucky They worked hard. I'm not lucky that I am where I am. I work hard for this. You've worked hard for this. It just amazes me that the president of the United States, the leader of the free world, can get up in front of college graduates and say this kind of stuff without people standing up and walking out. I've not found successful people claiming luck as their key to their achievements, unless they're attempting to be humble or something like that. You'll find losers blaming a lack of luck for their shortcomings and accusing the successful people of being lucky because the concept of hard work and smart choices paying off is is resented. But their dislike of reality doesn't make it less so. I mean... You remember a book a while back by Michelle Malkin called You Didn't Build That. And that was another speech by President Obama. But if you have a successful business, if you have a successful company, you didn't build that. You didn't do that on your own. Government helped you do that. It's because of what government does that allow that to be successful. If you got a business, that you didn't build that. Somebody else made that happen. It's just incredible to me that he can say this stuff, but it is enlightening to me that that's how progressives feel. That's the way they truly think things happen. And if you're rich 
or well off, you don't even have to be rich, just well off, you're lucky. Because the people who don't have what you have are victims. They're unlucky. This goes back to the pie being fixed, the economic pie being fixed. Progressives feel that there is a fixed amount of wealth out there. We've talked about this many times. And there is not a fixed amount of wealth. The pie continually expands from people willing to work and create and innovate. So the pie continually gets bigger. If I have an idea and I make a lot of money off that idea, I didn't take that money from anybody else. I made the pie bigger and I kept a percentage of that increase. It was interesting because also this week I saw a transcript of an interview with Robert Hershevik. Now, Robert Hershevik, he's best known, for me anyway, as one of the co-hosts on Shark Tank. I love Shark Tank. I watch it all the time. And he's one of the sharks, one of the, the multi-millionaires. Well, his family came to America fleeing communist Yugoslavia. He was eight years old at the time. And America turned him away. So they found refuge in Canada. Now listen to some of the advice that his father gave him. His father told him, never complain, and that all you're owed in life is an opportunity. Obstacles and rough patches are just par for the course. You're going to get knocked down. You just have to get up again and keep going because at the end of the day, success is your responsibility and so is failure. Hershevik said it's fine to struggle and stumble, but entrepreneurs should never give in. We're not put here to wallow in our own uh, misery. He went on to say on an average day, he sometimes makes a uh, hundred mistakes. But he tries not to make mistakes that will kill him or the business. Mistakes are just part of the process, and growing from those mistakes is what really matters. Last line was learn from the mistakes, and then most importantly, forget about them. Doesn't matter. Whatever you did wrong yesterday, nobody cares. Don't complain. Nobody cares. Get over it. Move on. Do better. Now, that, that, that's why I watch Shark Tank. I don't care about the entrepreneurs. I don't care about their products. None of that kind of stuff. I want to hear what the sharks have to say because they're always dispensing wisdom in one form or another on the show and reacting to the businesses and the entrepreneurs. Big contrast between Hershevik and President Obama in the message they want to put out there. I think it's an important, important difference. Coming up next, I'm going to talk a little bit about economic growth. Economic growth, the most important thing we have to look at. I'll talk about that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back 
to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. I don't know if you saw this or not, but in the first six months of this fiscal year for the federal government, the debt, the national debt, jumped over a trillion dollars. That's trillion with a T. We are now at 19.4, 19.5 trillion dollars of national debt. So six months, trillion dollars. Now, part of that was the delay in getting the budget passed and and that kind of stuff. So they had to make up for what uh, the Treasury Secretary Lou says, extraordinary measures, meaning they borrowed a whole bunch of money from government employee pensions, and they had to pay all that back. So that added to it. But still, between October 1 and September 30th, 2016, October 1, 15, September 30th, 16, we're going to have about a trillion and a half dollars added to the national debt. Now, coming up in another show, I'm going to talk, I'm going to spend the whole show talking about the government debt and what that means, why we'll never pay it off. But today I want to talk a little bit about the ratio of the national debt to the gross domestic product. This is a key indicator, a key metric to look at, if you will. But economic growth, which is the GDP, just, it, it, I don't know how else to put it, it stinks. And the economy is trying to catch up, but in, in, in the entire tenure of President Obama, the economy has not been above a 3% GDP growth rate. Not one quarter has it been above 3%. Now, he goes all over the world, all over this country, talking about how he saved the world economy from a Great Depression with his policies. Point is that this is the worst performance of GDP since the 30s. We haven't been above 4% since 2000, going back to Bush too. The rest of the world, eh, I shouldn't say the rest of the world, many parts of the world, are kicking our butt on performance. Emerging markets have performed well above the U.S. GDP growth. Now, right now, this 19 trillion, 19 plus trillion of national debt is about 105% of GDP. Now, the national debt grows, it's been growing about 5.7% the last 12 months, and the nominal economic growth is 3.5% nominal. So at those rates, if all things stayed the same, which we know they absolutely will not, but if all things stayed the same, by the year 2050, which is not nearly as far out there in the future as we used to think it was, the national debt will be $140 trillion, while the economy will just be 609 trillion. That ratio of debt to GDP then will be 229%. That is unsustainable. Even if interest rates stay low, that's unsustainable. Can't do that. If the economy would grow faster than the debt, then the debt to GDP ratio sinks and there's no financial crisis. But at those projections, now they're not true, 
Okay, it's not going to be 229%. It'll probably be worse, but it's just a projection going forward 30 years. But at those projection numbers, we, we, we would have no choice as a country but to default. And I, I don't think many of us realize how big of a role the United States plays in the world simply by existing and being the United States. I've often said that the strength of a country's currency is based on the strength of their military. In the past, we have had the strongest military ever, always. But our military continually shrinks, shrank under Bush, and it shrank a lot under President Obama. To the point where our submarines, our air force, our missile defense, operation systems, everything. We're unprepared for a major war. And that lack of readiness puts millions, hundreds of millions of people at risk. So we need to accelerate economic growth. How do we do this? Well... The simple answer is, government, get out of the way. Get rid of 90% of these regulations that are holding businesses back. Get rid of minimum wage. Get rid of national health care. Get rid of everything that slows down business. Lower the tax rates. What's wrong with a a 10% flat tax and a low corporate tax? We, we got to do this, or eventually that debt will take away our status in the world. It's, it's eroding very quickly now, but we need to grow this economy. We have the capability. We have the tools. We got to get rid of the barriers. Up next, I'm going to switch gears on you a little bit. I want to talk about civility, and yes... I got to talk about the the transgender bathroom issue. I'm sorry. We'll talk about that next. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, I'm going to apologize ahead of time because I don't think there's anybody in the United States more sick and tired of hearing about uh, the word inclusiveness when it comes to restrooms than me. Uh, I'm tired of this debate. Now, I've got a theory behind the... The, the the energy, if you will, of the debate. And I'll tell you about that in a minute. But right now, um, the Attorney General of the United States, the Attorney General, this is the top legal person in the United States, the Attorney General, Loretta Lynch, said this week that one person's, one person's desire to choose 
a male or female gender identity is more important than Americans' right to sexual privacy in shared public facilities such as bathrooms and school locker rooms. Now, this is the Attorney General, the top legal person of the United States, and she's using the words gender identity. To go on to quote her, this is about dignity and respect that we accord our fellow citizens and the laws that we as a people and as a country have enacted to protect them, indeed to protect all of us. This is so wrong, I don't even know where to start. But one of the things that stuck in my mind was the phrase dignity and respect. And that kind of hit home with me, because what about the dignity of everybody else? What about the respect of everybody else? Now, I'm not going to come on here and say that transgender people are all perverts and predators and that kind of stuff. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, I would say that probably a true transgender is probably no different than any of the rest of us from that standpoint. However, what I am saying is gender identity, quote unquote, is one of those terms that will allow people who are perverts and molesters and that kind of stuff to get away with what they want to do. And God bless North Carolina for standing up to them. Good for them. All their law says is you should use the restroom that is connected to the gender on your birth certificate. North Carolina law also says that if you have the surgery and have your sexual gender changed, that North Carolina will change your birth certificate. Now, you can't require people to carry around their birth certificate in order to use a bathroom. I understand that. But it would certainly help in any misuse of this and enforcing the law. How many of you want to use a restroom uh, with someone of the opposite gender? Ah, let's... Tell it like it is. How many of you ladies would use a restroom with a man walking in there? You feel comfortable with that? How about your daughters, your wives? How many of you feel comfortable seeing a man follow your wife into a restroom? I would not feel comfortable. I would follow him right in and escort him out. Knowing my wife, she'd likely shoot the guy. So (laughs) that's a different subject altogether. But think about this phrase, dignity and respect. This is the Attorney General of the United States. Transgender bathrooms are not a civil right. She compared them to Jim Crow laws. It has nothing to do with Jim Crow laws. Jim Crow laws, really? Black and white? Discrimination based on something that a person cannot change? A black person cannot have racial identity and identify as a white person. 
although there have been several white people that identified as a black person, and, and that didn't work out too well for them either. But this is not the same as Jim Crow, and it's not the same as civil rights that were fought for, people got beat up, dogs sicked on them, killed, that kind of stuff, to fight for racial equality. How can you compare those two? And while we're speaking about dignity and respect, what has happened to civility in our country? What has happened to that? Those of you that listen to me know that I I don't endorse anybody for president, and I never will, not on air. I will vote for someone, but... uh, I truly believe in the sanctity of the voting booth, and you will not know who I vote for, and I'm not going to try to influence anybody who listens to me one way or the other. But I'm tired. I'm tired of the third-grade playground aspect of what's going on in this country. I'm tired of it. Both sides, both supporters... Both sides supporters, everything. I mean, Rosie O'Donnell and Donald Trump go back a long ways calling each other names and insulting each other. Hillary Clinton insulting people. People insulting her, calling her names. What does a person's physical characteristics have to do with the discussion? And I think you know what I'm talking about. We, we, we've had people in the last week make statements about people, about their looks, uh, about their physical characteristics, and feel that that is absolutely fine, that they have nothing to apologize for. They did not step over a line. It's fine i got a problem with that. It is not fine. It is not civil. This is embarrassing to me, and it causes me to absolutely tune out these people permanently. Donald Trump and Megyn Kelly fighting over each other insulting each other, calling each other names. I I just, where has the civility gone? When did that become acceptable to attack people for their looks, for their physical characteristics, for whatever? Teeth, hair, everything. When, 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 When did that become acceptable. I think that is a big part of what America, the electorate, is sick of. I think that's why Donald Trump has a high rating and a low rating. I think some of the things he says people feel. But I think the negative is... He personally attacks people. And I'm tired 
of the personal attacks. Once someone starts personally attacking someone, I'm out. I'm out. I'm not going to deal with that. I'm not going to give them a second of my time listening to anything they say from that point on ever, ever. And I'm not going to accept one of those left-handed apologies. Well, I'm sorry if I offended you. If I offended you. That was your intent. Your intent was to attack that person. If it was not your intent, you wouldn't have been specific about the name-calling and the attacking of the physical characteristics. I don't see where that has a place in society today. I don't think it should be a law against them. I mean, if you want to call somebody a name, call them a name. But I think you need to be able to deal with the consequences of those actions. Civility. We need to bring that back everywhere for all of us, including driving, including politics, including interactions with anybody. We can't be doing this. It just makes us more of a third world country than the third world countries are. Stop the attacks. I'm done. I am done. Speaking of attacks, the new mayor of London has some interesting attack words. We'll touch on those next. And Hillary got a surprise endorser this week. Uh, We'll mention that. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. With Gary I'm sure you heard this, that uh, London has a new mayor who is Muslim. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't live in London. I didn't vote either way, of course, so I have no opinion about that. I mean, uh, the people of London can vote for whoever they want to vote for, as far as mayor, as far as I'm concerned. However, he did issue a warning to Donald Trump. And the warning was, moderate your stance on Muslims or they will launch more attacks against America. Now, that's pretty strong coming from a a mayor of a town. Now, granted, it's a big town. I understand that. But uh, that's... Uh, That's pretty strong. Now, Trump recently praised this guy for for winning London's mayoral race. And uh, this is beautiful. Said he'd be willing to create an exception in his policy restricting Muslim entry into the United States in order to allow Khan to visit. (laughs) I mean, that, that, that alone is, you know, I can understand the the infuriation uh, attached to that statement. But Khan dismissed Trump's invitation and also denounced his views on Islam as ignorant. 
suggesting Trump's policies would increase the terrorist threat in both the U.S. and the U.K. Donald Trump's ignorant view of Islam could make both of our countries less safe. It risks alienating mainstream Muslims around the world and plays into the hands of the extremist. Donald Trump and those around him think that Western liberal values are incompatible with mainstream Islam. London has proved him wrong. Well, you know what? I would argue against that. Uh, I don't think London has proved him wrong. Uh, certainly not at all. And, and to me, this veiled threat or open threat is be nice. Let's play nice. Be warm and fuzzy and we won't kill you. And I don't know uh, Donald Trump personally, never met him, never talked to him. But from what I can see, I could see him not reacting too well to a statement and a threat like this if he was president. He'll react to it now, I'm sure. But if he was president, I think that uh, those words would uh, have some serious consequences between Donald Trump and leadership that is higher up in Great Britain. If you look at British Muslims, two-thirds of them surveyed said they would not tell the government if a friend or family member became involved with extremists. Half of them said homosexuality should be illegal, and over 20% supported establishing Sharia law in the United Kingdom. So, saying that London has proved that uh, the mainstream will accept Islam, or Islam is part of the mainstream, just doesn't sing with me. Doesn't fly with me at all. But uh, not my country, not my mayor, and not my city. So uh, we'll see. We'll see. But, uh, you know, in my neck of the woods here in the Midwest, up in Michigan, I think it was Ham Tramping, recently had a majority of their city council be Muslim. And uh, so far, not much has changed, not much is different at this point, but... uh, We're keeping an eye on it and seeing if that underlying belief system influences their policies in the city. I think uh, London's in for eh, some big changes. I really do. It may take years. It may take a long time, but uh, I think you're in for some serious changes there. Hillary Clinton got a big endorsement this week. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, This was particularly noticeable to me here as my hometown is Toledo, Ohio. Uh, One of our native sons, P.J. O'Rourke, terrific political satirist. Got a lot of books out there. If you've not read anything by P.J. O'Rourke, oh, go look it up. I mean, get some of his stuff. It is amazing. But anyway, he came out and says uh, he's going to endorse Hillary Clinton for for president. She is the second worst thing that could happen to America. And he endorses her. 
all of her pomps and all her empty promises. Better the devil you know than the Lord of the Flies in his own 757, flying to and fro in the earth with gold-plated seatbelt buckles, talking nativist, isolationist, mercantilist, and bigoted. Now, once again, for those of you that have read P.J. O'Rourke, know that he loves satire, continually talks satire. He's extremely intelligent, extremely articulate, but uh, for him to come out and endorse uh, Hillary Clinton, I doubt that the Hillary camp is going to uh, make a big deal about that endorsement. (laughs) I think that uh, they will probably uh, just kind of ignore the whole whole concept, uh, saying, hey, vote for me because P.J. O'Rourke endorses me, especially from the standpoint of satire. Okay. But uh, uh, the Daily Beast had his column, and it's just fascinating. You know, he compares Hillary to Donald and uh, compares their golf games and their real estate development skills and that kind of stuff. But uh, it's fascinating to to read his take, given the fact that I am so sick of of the presidential campaigns as they are. I'm sick of the email stories you read every day uh you know nothing's going to come of that i know it you know it everybody knows it but we got to play the game a little bit and uh she's not going to be indicted she's not going to suffer any any consequences i don't believe of those actions for the state department to come out and say they can't find a single email between her and uh her it person uh, not a single email, not one over three, four years, whatever she was uh, Secretary of State. So and th- th- that is telling me nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to come of this. It's smoke and mirrors. And uh, just helps them build a bigger fire so they can do what they want to do. It's like the transgender bathroom issue. It's just a big fire. So everybody looks at that and gets emotional. And uh, Congress and the president uh, go ahead and do whatever they want to do and and get it through. So uh, hate to be a cynic, but that's the reality. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.